Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How's it going, Jill? So good. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be back. I was out sick last week, but you and Zofia did such a good job filling in for me. Um, I was like, why do I even do this when you guys have got it? Oh, please. We missed you. I love doing Week in Review, and I'm glad that we get to do it every week. So uh, thank you for filling in for me. This week, we have a couple of fun stories to talk about. We're going to talk about Chanel and Brunello Cuccinelli um, coming together to jointly take a part stake in this yarn spinning mill in Italy. And we'll talk a little bit about vertical integration um, and cross-brand collaboration. Um, We'll talk a little bit about some recent slowdown in luxury shopping in the U.S. and what might be causing that. And then finally, we're going to dive into this Dua Lipa Versace collection and the whole phenomenon of celebrity co-designed collections from luxury brands. But let's start with this Chanel and Cuccinelli thing. So like I said, they announced this week that they were taking a joint stake in an Italian yarn spinning mill called Cariaggi Lanificio. Um, The way it worked, from what I understand, is that Cuccinelli already was a partial owner of this mill. but the Cariaggi family was, you know, had the controlling stake. And then part of the new deal is that Chanel bought a few percentage points of the shares basically from the Cariaggi family and then a few from uh, Cuccinelli with the net effect being that the Cariaggi family still owns the majority of it and then Chanel and Cuccinelli equally. It's like, I think the family owns 51% and then uh, Chanel and Cuccinelli each own like 24.5% or something. So the two brands are equal with each other, but then the families like kind of controls the whole thing. Um, I thought it was just like an interesting bit for two reasons, which is one, I think vertical integration in, in fashion is, you know, something that's really interesting to talk about, especially a lot of luxury brands do stuff like that. And then the other point is just two luxury brands who are not involved and not owned by the same parent company, totally independent, working together on something like this, um, which, you know, is rare but not unheard of. We talked about Fendachi and, you know, sometimes people cross the conglomerate lines and work with their competitors and stuff all the time. So um, what are your thoughts on that kind of business move? And then we can get into some other examples and all those implications. Yes. I mean, I don't know how... I was reading a story where um, the two brands, first of all, I love how you say Cariaggi. <laughs> Cariaggi, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I love how the two brands are, um, I, I don't know how, they say they're friendly, there's a whole story and they're like, we we bonded over XYZ. Anyway, whatever. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is both brands want a piece of this pie <laughs> in my eyes. Um, and mm-hmm. I've written, we've written about, uh, we've read about um, the fact that these craftsmen, artisans. It's kind of a a dying breed. Like um, there was an amazing stat about like within three years, there will be 90,000 people (laughs) retiring craftsmen positions to fill. And this is not a like a hot industry for the young generation. And so LVMH and all of these other companies are doing a lot to not only like launch training that comes off as sexy and and to train the younger generation and to pay them well and all of these things. Um, there are all of these training talent programs in the works um, that, that companies are doing in-house. So Chanel's been investing left and right in all of the their suppliers and um, suppliers that are doing it right. I read that Cariaggi um, has, I guess, advanced. It's still... Um, 
artisans and they're doing handmade things. Something with robotics where it's it's sexy, it's innovative. Um, they are mm-hmm. successfully attracting young talent. Um, so to really like outsource and not have to do it in-house and invest and still have kind of uh, that sure thing access to craftsmen um, when that's such a part. We're going to talk a lot about our luxury briefing today, um, Mm -hmm. but it's such, I was like, who just told me about um, a training program? So I was looking through transcripts about our luxury briefing and I just typed the word craft, but there were so many references to the like luxury brands and that's where their value is. Um, uh, Jeffrey Fowler was taught from Hodinkee was talking about the handmade uh, watches and um, uh, Charles Gross was talking about the handmade bags and and how how valuable that is. So anyway, these brands want access, assured access. They want a part of it. And yes, yeah, Chanel's been going crazy. Yeah, and and like you're saying, these really really high end craftsmen. There's fewer and there's vanishingly few of them. And so the competition for vertical integration. If you want to own one of these, like you know, really prestigious. Um, you know, manufacturers or mills. Uh, it's. It, I wonder if Cuccinelli got a really, really attractive offer from Chanel to kind of buy into it because there's probably not a ton of others out there to for Chanel to buy into. Um, I also saw a, there was a statement from uh, someone at Cuccinelli about how part of the appeal of it was Chanel, which is a French company, um, investing a lot in an Italian manufacturer and kind of how that raised the profile of made in Italy fashion, which is obviously also a, a you know, a benefit, an indirect benefit for um, Cuccinelli, which I believe is all made in Italy or maybe primarily made in Italy. So there's kind of like that prestige effect of like more more big brands investing in the Italian manufacturing kind of market is is good like overall on like the macro scale. I wanted to mention a couple other examples because I was looking it up and there's actually been a pretty good number of um, like luxury acquisitions of suppliers and manufacturers and stuff recently. Just in the last two months, there was in April, LVMH took a controlling stake in Platinum Invest Group, which um, manufactures like metals and jewelry. I think that was meant specifically for Tiffany, like to aid because they use a lot of platinum. Um, And then this month, uh, Only the Brave, which is the parent company that owns Diesel and Maison Margiela, um, bought an Italian leather goods manufacturer called Frazzanetti. Um, And obviously, we know the benefit of uh, vertical integration, like especially the last couple of years during COVID, there was lots of headaches of, is our manufacturer actually going to get the stuff we need? When is it coming? All this sort of headache. Uh, and if you own your own factory, you know, that I think would clear up a lot of that stuff. Um, but also vertical integration is very expensive. Um, the reason not every company charters their own cargo ships like Walmart does is because not every company has Walmart money to play with. So the idea of kind of splitting a vertical integration with another brand is really interesting to me of we each take a, a, a equal stake in this and we kind of can both benefit from it, but we don't necessarily both have to fully 100% acquire like a big factory or something because that has got to be expensive. Yeah, it kind of felt like a steal, the original deal. I read that, um, you know, this is a large company. It's a main supplier for both uh, Cuccinelli and Chanel. It has 300 employees. It has 1,400 clients globally. So originally when Cuccinelli was going to take nearly 50% of the company, there was a report that invested invested 15 million euros. Um, So that was for a 43% stake. So that was, I think it was last year. So 
anyway, I, I feel like it's Chanel can drop this kind of cash um, yeah. <laughs> if it's half of that. And then, yeah, you mentioned, and also Prada and Xenia uh, recently invested in a cashmere yarn company, I think in 2021, oh, right. Italian. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's not only like the craftspeople, but it's it seems to be companies that are kind of on the right side of things. They're innovating, they're, they have, they're sustainably minded, I guess, but I guess all, all of like investing in luxury is an investment in sustainability, some would say. But anyway. Yeah. Um, well, yes. and, and there is, it's also a, a revenue stream, I would imagine. I mean, I, I was thinking about not luxury, but American Eagle bought that um, air shipping. Was it? Yes. No, they bought two things. I think it, Quiet Logistics is like a shipping logistics company that they bought. And that was vertical integration and in that it helped them with their own shipping. But also it was still doing shipping for other clients and they were still, they were, you know, American Eagle made some money and is making some money from that too. So like you said, this, this mill that, um, Chanel and Cuccinelli now jointly have a stake in is like still doing stuff for all these other clients as well. So there, there's money coming back to them too. So it's not just a total like dump, um, of cash, but speaking of luxury stuff, let's move to our second topic. Um, we have talked a lot on this podcast about luxury being kind of recession proof. And while all these other markets and sectors are, have been hurting recently that luxury brands are soaring and they're charging more and all this stuff. Um, there was a little bit of a, a downward correction this week. Not, not a ton, but it, it, I thought it was interesting. Um, a lot of brands are seeing specifically in the U.S., uh, luxury shopping slow down a little bit, not like go negative, but just kind of slow compared to the growth. Um, the the various analyses that I read, it seems like part of it is just that um, there were several kind of big things pushing luxury higher, like China coming back and all this stuff. And now that that's happened, it's like doesn't seem like there's some other big kind of like, you know, fire under it coming at the moment. So it's a little bit just like going to be coasting. Um, last week, I think LVMH said that their sales in the US were up, I think 8% or something. But they said that was actually primarily Sephora. Um, and without if you like had taken Sephora out, sales in the US were kind of flat. So it was really just that and Sephora is a little bit lower price um, compared to, you know, Louis Vuitton or something. And then uh, I had written in the weekend briefing last week about Canada Goose had a similar thing where their U.S. sales were down 4.5%, uh, but then their sales in Asia were up 65%, which is an insane kind of uh, two things to be happening at the same time. So uh, I, I wonder what else is going to happen in U.S. luxury and if there's going to be a lot more, like, let's focus on other markets for a while where there's more growth. Yeah, to me, it read as, I, I think, was it $32 billion crash this week uh anyway oh I, I think it was 60 actually of like market value kind yeah. of gone yeah it's wild so yeah it's a lot it's kind of like whatever comes up must come down like that crazy mm -hmm. growth we've seen over the last couple of I guess over the last year in particular um can't keep going so like you said yeah. it's like sales are still up year over year um they've slowed and I'm with you. U.S. sales slowed um, and the Chinese market. So everyone, what I've been reading and what I've been hearing uh, is saying 2024 is when it will actually ramp back up. And there are all of these convoluted issues with like, you know, passports are delayed and a large like um, the Chinese consumer likes to shop in Europe and in U.S. And that's not going to happen for, I don't know, six months. And um, at the same time, 
they've been in lockdown and they've had, there's a new fondness for domestic brands and they're not, um, which I'm sure will hurt our brands, uh, US brands in, uh, in particular and European brands. So anyway, there's a lot going on, but uh, even Burberry mm-hmm. was talking about um, the aspirational consumer. Obviously, like <laughs> we talk about time and time again, the economy is not great. It's not good. Mm-hmm. Things are not looking good uh, moving forward. And so um, some of those aspirational shoppers are cutting back. And those brands that have relied heavily on those, um, maybe um, they were building up the the low-hanging fruit, like we talked about, like the mm-hmm. Gucci-branded socks or the lipsticks or whatever it is. Um, I'm sure they're, they're hurting their uh, Burberry said they are. And there are amazing stats about like the top, I don't know, I think that my Teresa, this is not accurate, but it was something to the extent extent of like the top three percent of of consumers make up forty percent of the sales or something. But anyway, it was oh, like yeah. single digits makes up about forty percent of the sales, thirty to forty, um, which is huge. So I, you got to wonder. We've seen that the high end consumer, the highest of the high end consumer, is a little bit um, bulletproof when it comes to the ups and downs of the economy. So. Will this make brands focus on them more? They're already doing all these special things. Yeah. Yeah. And so we mentioned it earlier, but we have been running these series of luxury briefings, um, which uh, you should read. They're they're all really good. Um, and the one that I wrote this week was about collectibles and kind of like auction luxury that, you know, those super rare, super expensive things. And I was talking to Josh Pullen from Sotheby's. He's their uh, head of global luxury division, I think is his title. And we were talking about the macroeconomic environment, which is becoming my favorite kind of euphemism recently. It's so it's such a vague but funny term to me, macroeconomic. <laughs> but uh, we were talking about, you know, Sotheby's customer tends to be, you know, they sell super rare, super expensive stuff. So they're not as affected, but they also sell some lower price stuff. And there's like, yeah, there might be an effect there. But ultimately, like, they had sold a Rolex, um, like Paul Newman Daytona watch or something for like, several million dollars the day before. And he was like, that's not going to go away. That that customer is there. You know, as long as there's uh, a Michael Jordan game-worn sneaker to be bought for $3 million, there's that, you know, someone will be there to buy it. Um, and, it and did anything come up in your luxury briefings? I'm thinking of that first one you did on uh, like leather goods and stuff. Did, 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 did anybody talk about a slowdown or anything there? I know you got into some resale stuff and how that kind of bolsters the, the industry. Yeah, there was quite, well, resales changing everything is the word on the street. But yes, it wasn't about the, the luxury consumer kind of like going down a tier and looking for resale instead. It was about, like mm-hmm. you said, finding those um, rare items that are no longer available, or it was about the aspirational shopper going there instead. Again, we see you t- write a lot about um, brands launching their own resale in-house. I'm sure mm-hmm. this in the state of the economy that brands that are doing that, um, that's serving them well. A lot of them are saying this is not a huge moneymaker right now, but if they have this in place and brand and shoppers are looking for something a little more affordable, um, no doubt that's helping a bit. Yeah, for sure. 
let's talk about our last topic. Again, a little luxury related. This is a good theme week of luxury since we've got these briefings coming out. Um, but the last topic I want to talk about is that at Cannes this week, um, the singer Dua Lipa unveiled a collection co-designed with Versace um, that I felt was very Barbie core, which is something we talked about uh, on this <laughs> podcast a couple of weeks ago, but like very pastel colors and pinks and loud patterns and stuff, um, which I thought was very fun. And like, I like Dua Lipa, like the music and I like Versace. Uh, but I want to connect this to the role of celebrity in fashion, which I feel like is, you know, an interesting, an interesting topic, but everything from just, you know, brands with celebrity ambassadors or muses, like, like Alessandra Michele and Jared Leto and their kind of weird, uh, thing there, but all the way up to like <laughs> Pharrell being appointed the creative director at Louis Vuitton. Um, in our luxury briefing, again, this this week, there was some research um, that we had commissioned through Saks Fifth Avenue, and one of the details that stuck out to me was that a lot of younger generations, uh, you know, are, there was a question on this survey about what inspires you to make a luxury purchase, and there's all these things like a text from a brand, or, you know, an email or text marketing from a brand, or inspiration from an outfit my friend is wearing or something, and uh, one of the big ones for younger people was inspired by an influencer or a celebrity. Um, and I think a lot of luxury brands are kind of tapping into that, not just by having a celebrity in their marketing or having them on the, you know, in the audience at the runway show, but now like bringing them in and having them fully co-design a collection, you know? Uh, so there's that Calvin Klein, I think, has done a bunch of cool stuff with K-pop stars, like Jenny Kim co-designed a collection with them. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of stuff like that. Anyway, I've been talking for a while. Joe, what are your thoughts on the Dua Lipa Versace collection, but also just kind of celebrities and, and you know, being brought in not just for marketing, but for co-designing as well? Yeah, I mean, and look at not just musicians, which uh, we know Balmain did what recently did one with uh, yes. Beyonce, but also like Kardashian and Dolce and Gabbana, Kim Kardashian. Um, yes, the wedding, right? Or no, yeah. whose wedding was it? Courtney's, Courtney's wedding, wedding. and then Kim remember Dolce. did the runway show. Apparently, anyway, the new the new season airs this week, which I love. But they're going to talk about mm. how Kim used that as a business opportunity, the wedding to like canoodle <laughs> with D and G. Anyway, that's the word on the street. Yeah. I'm into it. Um, but yeah, I think this is like Versace has a way. This is the I it's newer for them, I think, or they've ramped it up. This idea of like a cultural moment. We saw it with the Oscars. They they um they had their LA show timed with that. And also, you know, dressed Lady Gaga in a look directly from the runway. There were just all of these elements that made a pow pow, like kind of a moment. And the same thing happened with this show where it was like tapped into all of these elements of pop culture with Dua Lipa. And like you said, Barbie core, the movie comes out next month. And mm -hmm. then it tapped into nostalgia with references to a 1995 collection. It tied to the Cannes Film Festival, which is this huge fashion moment. Um, so mm -hmm. it was just like they're very smart. I don't know how far ahead they're working on these things, but like they're hitting all the points. And it reminded me of um, Michael Costello, the designer was just on the Glossy podcast this week. Such an enjoyable interview. You should listen. But he was talking about the high cost of a fashion show um, where, where I was like, is it, we keep referencing like $100,000. And he was like, oh, just the venue itself can be up to $220,000. And he named yeah. all of these other prices associated with a show. And then he said, and then, you know, another 
designer, competitor, somebody big like a Marc Jacobs could come in, put their show right on top of yours, and you spent all of this money and it's like, what a bust. Like get nothing. Yeah. Yeah. What a fail. So I feel like this is a surefire way and maybe this is the new norm. And maybe again, this is like survival of the fittest because what young brand can do this, but um, maybe this is what's needed to actually like cut through the noise nowadays. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good point. And my, my, my question about the co-design specifically is that I wonder, it's presented as different from just this celebrity is the face of this collection. But I wonder in specific cases how different it actually is behind the scenes. Because the, so for this Dua Lipa Versace thing, there were several kind of articles about it and, and interviews where they said that she actually like came in with sketches that she had done and like was actually in the design workshop and they brought the stuff to life. And it sounds like she actually co-designed, but I am certain that there is probably some co-design collections where it's like, yeah, we gave them a tour of the workshop and then just put their name on it or whatever. Um, I'm sure it happens because, you know, people like Pharrell, he's an experienced designer. He is, has actual design chops. And Dua Lipa said in an interview that like, she's like, I don't know how to draw. I'm I'm not like a designer by trade, but it sounds like she contributed. Um, But there's got to be celebrities who just have no clue what they're doing or they show up with a crayon drawing that's like terrible and, you know, it looks like a five-year-old did it. so, yeah, I wonder about the authenticity of some parts of it and if it is more effective uh, in the consumer's eyes than just saying that Dua Lipa is the fit. And I, sh- I shouldn't pick on her. Like, you know, <laughs> saying this celebrity is the face of the collection rather than this celebrity was, you know, had the the measuring tape around their neck and was like <laughs> draping and pinning stuff, you know, right alongside Donatella Versace or whatever. Yeah, I got to wonder if this like stings designers or like budding designers. Like, you know, I mm-hmm. I recently read, I don't know if it's watched a video on Instagram, but Joseph Altazara, who's established and very successful, but talked mm-hmm. about his day. And it was like, I start my day, I come to the office every day, I sit down and I sketch for like mm-hmm. two hours every day. And I'm like, the fact that she's like, yeah, I don't sketch. I don't know any of this. Um, mm-hmm. For those who are struggling to like make it and like there's going to be all this press like, oh, her collection <laughs> she designed yeah, sold yeah. out. Like what? Um, Michael Costello alluded to something that you were talking about with he's a, the top. His brand is a top seller at Revolve. He has a collaboration with them. Revolve does a lot of collaborations with celebrity types, influencers. And <laughs> he didn't say it directly, but he was like, oh yeah, there's this, there's this brand, there's this brand, this collaboration. I'm just going to say, I do the work. I'm there six six times a month and I'm Mm -hmm. bringing my sketches and I'm doing this. And it was a little bit snarky and throw in shade. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, as you were saying that, it reminded me that um, when Pharrell was, you know, got the job at Louis Vuitton, I remember there was some consternation from designers that it's like, you know, they should have picked a, a quote-unquote real designer. Not not putting my opinion out there of, I mean, I think he's is a real designer. He de- has design experience. But there definitely was a feeling a little bit of like celebrity Trump's design talent or design experience. Um, and with more, you know, co-designed with whoever collections, I do wonder if, if more designers or design students or people who are maybe not household names, but, you know, put in a lot of the work might resent that a little bit, but I don't know. Might be something for us to investigate, actually. Maybe we'll ask around. 
Yes, it might be uh, what pop is built around. Hey, hey, intersection of fashion and pop culture. Read there glossy pop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think that's all the time we have this week, but uh, this was so fun. I'm glad to be back. Um, Jill, thanks for being here. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast again, wherever you're listening to this, because you will hear We Can Review episodes every Friday with me and Jill or me and other people. Uh, sometimes Jill and Sophia if I'm out sick. Um, and every Wednesday there will be cool industry interviews with people on the inside, um, people like Michael Costello. Um, but who is up next, Jill? Who's our next guest? Up next, so fun. It's uh, Raf Peck. He's the CEO of uh, Brixton, which actually started as a hat mm. brand. It's uh, based in California, but he has all of this amazing experience um, as a CEO for active work companies, sportswear companies, Under Armour, um, just this extensive background, and he's doing cool things with Brixton. Beautiful. Well, tune in for that. And thank you again, Jill. And for those of you listening at home, we'll see you next week. 